Father, I decrease so that you may increase. But I become less so that you can become more. I pray that you would move me out of the way tonight. That your people would not hear me or see me, but they would hear and see you, God. Be glorified, Lord. Be praised. I pray, God, that your word would would stand over and above anything that is of me. And that you would use me, God, to declare your word. Amen. Well, as you guys know, we've been going through the the marks of a biblical church. This is a, a sub-series to our larger series of the essentials of the Christian faith. So far, we've learned uh, a number of things. We've learned that a, a biblical church is one that teaches expositionally. We've learned that a, a biblical church sings, preaches, and displays the gospel. We've learned that a, a biblical church is one that teaches biblical theology. A biblical church is one that is passionate about evangelism. A biblical church is or has a form of church membership, but then also a form of church discipline. Now, I want you guys to listen real close tonight because that's not up there. But Johnny is going to be dependent. It's going to be dependent upon Johnny if we can get that overhead projector up there. So bug him after service. All right. Uh, tonight, we are going to speak about the, the number eight mark of a biblical church of about, I think I have about 11. So number eight, a biblical church is one that makes disciples. A biblical church is one that makes disciples. Jesus commanded that we go into all the world and make disciples. This is not seen any more clearly, this disciple-making process. It's not seen any more clearly than when we meet meet each week for worship and then when we have these intimate times of fellowship throughout the week. Scripture teaches in 2 Peter 1.18 that a Christian is alive and growing. A Christian is alive and evidence of their life is that they're growing. That's huge. I would also say that evidence of your life is hunger. If there's no hunger, then maybe you're dying. Right? So hunger is evidence of life, and growth is evidence of life. Same thing with plants. We not only grow by being instructed, but we also grow by watching and imitating. So we grow by instruction, which is happening tonight, And then we also grow by imitating those that we see. Much of what I learned was was not so much, even though what my father had to say had a huge impact on my life. But much of the growth that, that I learned from my father was through watching him, through watching his his practice of early early morning prayer, through watching his practice of early morning study, through through even watching the way that he spoke to people. Many times that I've failed, but the standard or at least the example that I had of how to speak to people came from what I saw my father do. As a matter of fact, I remember one time we were I was maybe 10 years old and I went to do an estimate with him on a job and he was speaking to a a cowboy kind of guy. And he was talking just like this with the cowboy, and they were just having a good old time. And so we got in the car, and I said, how come you talk like a cowboy when you were talking to that guy? And he was explaining to me that you start talking their language, and you, you know that's how you connect with them. And 
I never lost that. So now that I'm working and doing the same job, it's interesting how I'll kind of pick up that same kind of uh, practice by what my dad showed me when I was just a 10-year-old boy. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A biblical church will be one that encourages members to grow in holiness and in that process help one another to walk in a way of holiness. So it encourages us to grow in holiness and we help each other through that process of growing in holiness. This is what discipleship is all about. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. We are to grow, Ephesians says, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Philippians 4.9 and Hebrews 13.7 call us to imitate godly leaders. For, uh, Philippians 4.9 and Hebrews 13.7 call us to imitate godly leaders. The point is that we should all be growing in Christ imitating other godly Christians and encouraging one another to grow into the likeness of Christ and into the holiness that Christianity or Christ calls us to. Each week, as I come out and and stand before you, it is encouraging as I look out and see many of you week by week, month by month, and for many of you year by year, because of the truth that you've been taught in God's word, Stand through some of the difficulties that you are standing through every single week. For me to come up and see you knowing some of your difficulties here at church, standing in faith, trusting in God and his word. You've got to know how encouraging that is for me to continue to do what? Continue to stand. You also must know that seeing your uh, struggles and also seeing your victories you standing through it all is encouraging for people around you who also know the struggles that you're going through. We can talk about Ellie's broken hand. We can talk about some of your sicknesses that you've gone through. We can talk about Patricia's never-ending broken foot. We could go on and on and on about some of the struggles that you go through, but yet you're here. And for what? Why? What keeps you coming? It's the word of God that you stand on. It's your faith in Christ that keeps you standing on him. Know, brothers and sisters, that by you doing that, other people are watching you and they're being encouraged. Even though they don't tell you, they're being encouraged by your faith. They're being encouraged by your consistency. They're being encouraged by your strength that's rooted and grounded in Christ, God the Father, obviously, in his word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have said that when we make disciples, we are sharing the word. Showing the word, teaching the word, and serving the world. We're going to go through each four of these, but let's first go to Matthew chapter 28, verse number 16. The Bible says in verse number 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. You only worship God. And they worshipped God, or they worshipped Jesus. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, this is huge, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In this passage, there is 
essentially one command or one imperative verb in the original language of the Greek New Testament. That one imperative verb is not go. Instead, it's two words that make one command. Make disciples. In the Great Commission, Christ is commissioning us to make disciples. It is the command of Christ. And we do all of the things other than the one thing that Christ has imperatively commanded us to do in the Great Commission. Make disciples. He never called us necessarily to start Sunday schools. He never called us necessarily to do big programs, buildings, colleges, conferences, conventions, advertisements about our church. But yet we do all of these things and avoid the one thing that Christ has commanded us to do. Make disciples. He said to make disciples in every part of the world. Now, are the things that I just mentioned bad? No. But if they keep us from doing the one thing that Christ has commanded us to do, then yes, they are bad. We can have the most amazing Bible classes, best programs, sharpest speakers, nicest buildings. And yet in the process of all of these nice, great things, never once make a disciple. I could preach for 20 years and never make a disciple. We could go on mission and never make disciples. So we have two choices. Number one choice is we can have self-directed strategies and hope that God blesses them. We have so many ideas of how we think the church should grow. There are conferences about church growth. There are conferences about how to market your church for the sake of gaining exposure. And I know many churches, uh, surprisingly, not many, but there's a few, even reformed churches that, what are you doing? Anyways, that go with the model of trying to look more like a business than like a gospel preaching church. The disciples had their own ideas, essentially, of how followers of Christ should be followers of Christ. Peter even corrected Jesus when Jesus explained to him how he would save many through his death. Peter's response to Jesus is, no, you will not. I will not let you. I don't think that's a good idea in order to make this thing grow. Jesus' response to him was, you're full of the devil. God has not promised to bless our good motive motives. God has not promised to bless our good ideas. God has not promised to bless our earthly man-made interventions. He has only promised to bless his plan. And that is what we must obey. Now, the other choice is we follow a Christ-directed strategy that guarantees God's blessing and God's presence. Jesus commanded that when we go and make disciples of all nations, when we go and do his plan, check this out. He will bring glory to God in bringing many sinners to himself. That's God's strategy. Go preach the gospel. God will empower you with the Holy Spirit. He will change hearts and then you will teach them to follow as you have followed. This is God's plan. This is God's strategy. Now we think, can we get more creative than that? God says no. God says, my plan is preach the gospel. Tell them to repent. Tell them faith in Christ alone. Baptize them and then teach them all that I've commanded you. It seems pretty simple, does it not? 
Don't bring in a DeLorean. Don't bring in the blue guys and do a drum show. Don't put on a play. Instead, preach the gospel and then teach them the word. In doing so, you will make real disciples, not false converts. We have to. This is the plan of God. This is what he has commanded us to do. And a biblical church will be one that does this. Jesus says that when we do this, verse 20 of Matthew chapter 28, I am with you. When we follow the Christ-directed strategy, God's plan, he promises that he is with us in a very unique and special way. How we have been talking about God is with us through communion in a very unique and special way. So he is with us when we go and make disciples in a very unique and special way. When Jesus gets to Matthew chapter 28, he says, make disciples, basically saying, you've seen what I've done. Now you go and do the same for others. So what did he do, Matthew? Or let's go to John chapter 17. This is this is known as the holy of holies. It is the place where we get this intimate look of Jesus speaking to the father. This prayer comes at the end of Jesus's life and the end of Jesus's ministry. And when he gets here, he's recounting to the father all that he has done. He says in verse number four of chapter 17, I have brought glory on earth by completing. The same word used in John 1930 when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. He says in John 17, four, I have completed. What is he completed? He says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you have given me to do. Listen now. And then he begins to describe the work that he's done. And interestingly enough, in John 17, the work that Jesus does as he's recounting the work that he did is not the multitudes that were fed. Interestingly enough, the work that Jesus speaks about being completed is not the blind that had been given sight, the dead that had been raised to life, the sick who had been healed, the water that he walked on. It was none of those things. Instead, Jesus looks back at the work that he has now completed, and he's looking at a small group of men. They were his work. The work that he completed was completed in this small group of men. They were his work. They were the work that God had given him to do, and it would be consummated or completed at the cross. Jesus' strategy was to revolutionize the hearts of just a few men. And in the process, the Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 15, or chapter something. Don't quote me on that one. The Bible says in the book of Acts, though, that they turned the world upside down. Revolutionize the hearts of just a few men. They, in turn, go and turn the world upside down as they are empowered by his spirit. The Bible says in Acts 1.15 that when Jesus comes back, there are only 120 people who stuck around and follow Jesus. Think about that. 120 people for Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh. By all modern accounts of church success, Jesus' church would be a failure because there's only 120 people. Not a mega church, a mini church. He gave his life and a few men. He taught them how to think, how to feel, how to see, how to love and how to serve 
like he served. And they would be empowered to impact the world. Disciples, you should know, cannot be mass produced overnight. We don't mass produce disciples overnight. I know some of you are looking at this church like, man, when is this thing going to grow? Oh, it's growing. One disciple at a time. One disciple at a time. It's growing for the glory of God. And what I mean by that one disciple at a time is not number, 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 number. Instead, person to person are growing in Christ. It took the son of God three years with 12 guys to turn the world upside down. And we are fooling ourselves if we think that we can make an assembly line of programs and and performances. And then all of a sudden we'll have thousands of people here. Is that really the goal? Thousands of people here so that we can say, look how many people are here. No. He spent time with these men. Then they go to the masses and then the masses do the same. People are God's way of winning the world. And Satan wants us to get away from reaching people. He's convinced people that we need performance when they come to church. That they need a preacher who can draw the crowd. They need a band that can really jam. They need awesome buildings that cost millions of dollars designed for for comfort so that when you come in here, you can be comfortable. And then also we can house this great performance. We need top-of-the-line programs. This group, that group. This demographic, that demographic. And, God, and, and professionals leading each and every one of those groups. And you put it all together, and you have a successful megachurch. That's not the way we do disciple-making. When you look at the church in the New Testament, we don't see anything like that. It's a body. It is a people People whose, heart, people whose hearts have been revolutionized by Christ and his spirit. People equipped and empowered by the spirit of Christ. And here's what they're doing. They're not sidelined, but they're equipped with the gospel and his spirit. And they go out. Not sidelined, but equipped with his spirit and his word to accomplish the mission of Christ. We do not depend on an institution to do this for us. Let me encourage you. Don't bring someone here and think if if I said something special that their lives would be changed. You're in their lives. You know them. You've been equipped with the gospel and you also have the spirit of God. Same spirit that's in Christ is in you. You give them the gospel. Don't think there's anything special about me because there's not. Don't depend on my words. Depend on his word. I'm going to die one day. And if you're looking for someone to be just like me, then you're going to be looking for a dead man. Because the person that you were looking for is already dead. No, look for his word. Look for his word to be declared. Don't look for a style. Don't look for a personality. Don't look for a charisma. Look for his word. When you look for his word and you are having ears open for his word, then you will praise God that a man stands behind a pulpit and declares his word. No matter who it is. So if we are intended to make disciples, then we need to know how do we make disciples? If Christ has commanded us to make disciples, then at least one thing we should know how to do is know how to make disciples, right? If you were asked today, what does it mean to make disciples or how do you make disciples? Think about what would your response be? 
If there's anything that we need to know, it's we need to know how to make disciples. So we're going to walk through a few components of how to make disciples. Very easy. They're not exhaustive, but there are a few things or a few points that I believe that Jesus demonstrated and practiced in his earthly ministry. And let me just say as we get into this, this will not be easy. It's painful. It's tedious. It's time consuming. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And for me, I think one of the greatest examples of it being worth it is the, the, the changes that I've seen in some of the men who show up consistently on a, on a weekly basis to the race. And the women's hearts who have been changed through women of the word. It's just spending that private, personal time with them. So number one, how do we make disciples? Number one, share the word. We go and share the gospel. We go and introduce people to Christ. Evangelism. A biblical church will be one that does evangelism. We'll get into this probably next week, but a biblical church is also one that is passionate about missions. Meaning this, taking the gospel where it has not been preached. Now, when we go to Los Angeles, I'm not going on a mission trip. Why? Because everybody in Los Angeles has heard of Christ. Matter of fact, the, the ratio is in America, one out of one people will hear the gospel at least one time a day. If you go to Mexico, one, or one person will hear the gospel at least two times a day. If you go to the Middle East, nobody hears the gospel. So mission is going where the gospel has not yet been preached. So when we go out on our next trip, we're going to evangelize, to declare the gospel. But we're not necessarily going on mission to give the gospel where it's not been preached because it's been preached all over the United States. This country was founded on Christian principles. Amen. So it starts with doing what? Going out and sharing the word. How many of you would be honest enough to say that sometimes frightens me? Good. And here's what I want to encourage you with. Matthew chapter 28, verse number 18. All authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me, and then he gives you, because of his authority, he gives you a command, therefore go. But what are you going based upon? His authority. Are you going on your own authority? No. If you were going on your own authority, then you should be scared. But since you're not going on your own authority, but you're going on the authority of Christ, you can trust that when you declare this gospel, it is on the authority of Christ Jesus himself and not yours. Therefore, have no fear, because in that process, he promises that he's with you. Think about that the next time we go to Tent City or wherever it may be, the marketplace, to first, what, Tuesdays, Saturdays, whatever it is, downtown. Go with that mindset. That all authority in heaven and, earth has been, heaven and on earth has been given to Christ and he has commanded me to go. Therefore, in that process, as I go, he is with me. I will not be afraid. So we go with the, with the authority of Christ, not our own. Jesus has authority over all. We go as representatives of Christ. We see in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 that Christ has entrusted the church with his authority. The authority of Christ has been given to the church. The Spirit of God is in you for the purpose of being a witness. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even to Bakersfield. We're kind of the ends of the earth, huh? When you give yourself to this command, you see his presence. I cannot tell you that the moments I can. I was sitting with Arnold when we were sharing the gospel with these Muslims. And it had to be the spirit of God with me through that process, because some of the things that were talked about, I don't know how they just come up. It's not my sharpness. It's not my my smarts. It's his spirit that he promised to be with me when we go. I can say the same for every single person that continues to go out to the gospel. And it's also with your family. You imagine sometimes you're sitting there with your family and you don't even know where some of the things that you're talking about came from. And it's the spirit of God inside of you. I know Tony on the job, Gilbert, all of you guys, when you're just there and you you don't even know how you remembered all of those things. It is the spirit of God who promises to be with you in those moments of sharing the word. What does he say? He will bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. And then you're there. And all of a sudden, you will never have a good memory. You can't even remember where you put your keys. All of a sudden, you're remembering these scriptures. All of a sudden, you're remembering, remembering these points. And then you get done with that. And you think, God, that was amazing. Well, that was the Spirit of God. Bringing to remembrance the things that he has taught you for the purpose of being a witness to the glory of God. We will never know this, though, if we sit on the sidelines. Number two. So share the word. Number two, show the word. This is going and preaching. And as a result of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, living, living as believers that make a public declaration of their faith and are baptized. This is the the picture of baptism in our identification with Christ. It connects us to his body. It is when we go from a private confession to a public demonstration of faith in Christ. This, uh, think about how it relates to discipleship. The world wants to see the effects of the gospel in our lives. They don't want to just hear you talk about it. And you know people on your job who talk about, I'm a Christian, on one side of their mouth. And then talk like the devil on the other side of their mouth. And what do you think about them? Well, if you think that they're hypocritical, imagine what the unsaved, unregenerated person thinks about not only them, but also you, because y'all are in the same boat. Or at least they think you are. It is of the utmost importance that we not only declare the gospel, that we live lives of holiness before people of the world. So that we give no person room to speak any ill against us. Although they will. Jesus showed his disciples how to live. Can you imagine living with a person for three and a half years who never sins? Can you imagine living with a person for three and a half years and every time something went wrong... It's never your fault or it's, it, it's always your fault and not his. How frustrated would you be with someone who is perfect and holy? But how encouraged would courage would you be to live in that way? You see, that's the challenge that you have when you're on your job. That's a challenge that you have when you're in your family. That's a challenge that you have on a daily basis to to not only declare this gospel, but to live this gospel, knowing that people are watching to see how the effects of the gospel are taking place in your life. And that is a, that is a, a, a big load on your shoulders, it seems like, because our greatest response is, well, I'm not perfect. Of course not. The world knows you're not perfect. But are you sincere in your pursuit of Christ?
And you should be. When I first thought about discipleship, I thought it's just supposed to be a class. I thought, we'll get together and we'll meet and that's discipleship. No, it's sharing life. It's sharing life with one another. The last thing that we need to do is let me sign you up for a discipleship class. Instead, let me bring you together with me and I'm going to show you how I pray. Let me bring you together with me and I'm going to show you how I read the Bible. Let me bring you together with me. Spend the day with me and let me show you how I speak to my wife. Let me show you how I love my son. Let me show you what I do when we're just laying around the house. Let me show you what I watch. And maybe this is why we do not want to get involved in discipleship. Because that would mean that some of our dark areas in our life would be exposed. The dark areas that we know should not be a part of our life. 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What a bold statement. What a bold statement. You would be uh, uh, maybe shocked if someone today said, follow me as I follow Christ. Let me show you how to follow Christ. And this is what we should be saying. This is exactly what I said to one of my young friends when I I shared with him. I'm going to walk with you through scripture. I'm going to show you how to pray. And we're going to do this every week and you're not allowed to miss it. Praise God for the benefits or for the fruits that's coming forth from that young man's life. The Bible says in Philippians 4, 9, whatever you have learned or received from me, this is Paul speaking. He says, put it into practice. Could any of us say that? Whatever you've seen me do, whatever you've watched in my life, put it into practice. What a great responsibility he takes for his own Christian life. And takes it so seriously. With such a clear conscience that he could tell someone, walk alongside me and do what I do. I remember when we were going through through elders and, and what that means. And one of the points that Mark Dever made about being an elder is. Imagine an elder is a person that you would want the rest of your church to be like. And then I looked at myself. And I said, I've got a long way to go. And it really challenged me in my own personal life, in my prayer time, in my reading time. In the way that I speak to people. Because if I'm standing up here declaring the word of God. And I I'm, 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 should be bold enough to say what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians. And also what Paul is saying in, in Philippians. 1 Corinthians and Philippians 4. That follow my example as I follow Christ. I should be bold enough to say that. Maybe this is why we run from making disciples. Because part of that. Is depending on how we live this gospel out and not just preach it or teach it. I think we've said before, you can know all of theology, but if you don't live a life of doxology, it means nothing. There is beauty in the process of helping others grow when we begin to grow. And, and, and in the process, think about this, in the process of helping others to grow, you grow. Right? In, in teaching others, you learn. Because you first have to know before you can teach. If you're going to show someone how to pray, you need to know how to pray. If you're going to show someone how to study, you need to know how to study. If you're going to show someone how to witness, you need to know how to witness, etc. When you help others to grow, you will see amazing growth in your own life. And the point isn't that you are perfect at all these things. The point is that you do these things. Now... Don't think that you have to wait until you are perfect or that you have to wait until you've so-called arrived. 
Because you're never going to arrive. And you're never going to be perfect. And we ourselves will grow when we give ourselves to these commands and teach others to do the same. There is beauty in disciple making. There is beauty in living for the glory of God. 1 Thessalonians 3.8 says, For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. Like a parent who's raised their kids, seeing them succeed in life and in the areas that they once depended upon you for. The areas that you used to advise them on, now they're living those things out. They're growing. And now they're having their own family. And you're seeing what that looks like in their own life. Now, many of you are young, but many of you have kids. And you can see some of the things that you taught them now implementing or them now implementing in their children's lives. The goal is for you to be grown enough that you can turn around and do the same for someone else. How would you like it if your kids... We're living in your house until they were 40, asking you to still make them top rank. Can you please make me eggs? I don't know how to do it yet. You would be a failure as a parent. You haven't yet taught them how to make top rank. Get the water, boil it, throw the noodles in there, pack it, boom. Well, when it comes to Christianity, the same is true. That there should be a point in which you are now turning around and teaching someone else and not coming back and saying, now, where should I read? Number three, teach the word. Teaching is a spiritual gift. It's a task to leaders. But in the context of disciple making, you teach your, your family. You teach your friends. You teach your neighbor. This is supposed to be something that you don't just leave to professionals. It should be something that you don't just leave to people standing behind the pulpit. You do it yourself. You teach. Every follower of Christ is supposed to be a teacher. Every follower of Christ is supposed to be a theologian. You teach others to obey, just as you have been taught to obey. This is why you take notes. This is why you listen expositionally. This is why when you come, you don't fall asleep, because other people are depending on what you learn. What am I doing all week? I'm listening and I'm reading. Why? Because there are people's lives here that I've been charged with to protect and to feed. You have people in your own lives that as I'm feeding you, you should be feeding others. As I'm being fed, I'm feeding you. You should be feeding others. It should be passed on. It should never stop with you. It spreads through you. And if it doesn't spread through you, then it's failed in what it's supposed to do. Not it. You have failed. Because the word of God never failed. You have failed to pass it on. We always receive his word. Again, it's not just about receiving it. It's about reproducing his word. When we hear his word, we hear it. We learn it. But not just for the sake of ourselves, although it's primarily first for ourselves. The sanctifying work that it does in our lives and through our lives, but it's also for the sake of others. Teach others. Think about the people that are in your life right now that would benefit from some of the things that you are learning or some of the things that you know. And how they are not benefiting by you not teaching it to them. It's weird. I don't know how to actually sit down with my daughter or my son and teach them the word. Here's how you do it. You bring them in and say, open up your Bible. I'm going to teach you something. It's that simple. I don't want to do it. Are you in my house? Yes. Okay. Well, you're going to do it then. It's that simple. 
I'm going to my room. Cool, we can go do it in there. I think it's that simple. I'll wait till next week gets old. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) This is our goal. We take this word and we pass it on. Now, if you're thinking, what can I get out of this service? What's in it for me? Then, Then you're missing the point of this. It becomes you become the center of this service rather than Christ being the center of this service. But when you begin to make Christ the center, when you begin to learn for yourself for the purpose of passing it on, now you have a different reason for listening, don't you? Now when you come, it's not just, what am I? it wasn't really good, I didn't really get much out of it. Are you kidding me? The Holy Spirit spoke through the scriptures and you get nothing out of what he said? Please. His word spreads through us. It does not stop with us. Number four and finally. Serve the world. John seventeen eighteen says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Christ was was sending his disciples out. So we lock arms together as we lay down our lives for the world. Get dirty. Go to tent city. Sit in that germ infested area with people and display the love of Christ in sitting on that dirty area or that dirty floor with them. And in doing so, you are serving them in a way that most people would not. Now, it's easy to go and drop off food, but it's different to actually sit with them, pray with them, listen to them, and then give them God's word. Is it possible to be a Christian and have no impact on the world? I don't think so. Is it possible to to be a Christian and have no more impact on the world than we did before we were saved. I don't think so. I don't think that we are saved just to live quiet, decent, risk-free lives in our gated communities. I think God is calling us out of those gated communities. I think God is calling us to risk. I think Piper has a book that's called, with David Platt, called Risk is Right. Risk our lives. Please read Fox's Book of Martyrs. See the lives that were risked as they went out to share the gospel amongst people who had never heard. Can you imagine cannibals taking you and killing you? Can you imagine as you go and share the word that they take you and put you in boiling oil? Can you imagine your head being cut off for all the others who are entering into the city that are like you to see so they know what's going to happen to them when they come and still going? Risk is right. Because in giving the gospel, you are sharing, you are serving the world in a way greater than Red Cross could ever do. You are serving the world in a way greater than Habitat for Humanity could have ever done. You are serving the world in a greater way than any other philanthropic organization could ever do. We could give food, we can give clothing, we can give medicine, we can give housing. But if we do not give the gospel, we are overlooking the true need in their lives. And that is the saving of their souls. So we have two options. God's way or man's way. We can pour our resources into performances. Or we can trust God's plan. Go and give the gospel and teach them the word and teach them to follow me 
I found a stat that I told our, our, our uh, membership class that every week we go and share the gospel with people, let's say, and we invite 10 people to come. And 10 people come to Christ every week. At the end of the year, 500 people come to faith in Christ. 30 years from now, doing that same number, we would be a church of 15,000 strong. And we would have made a small dent in the United States population. Now we think progress. Man, 10 people are here. We have 15,000. Or we go with the plan of Christ. Listen to this. Over the next year, you share your faith with one person and make a disciple. Next year, that person goes and makes two. Next year, that person goes and makes four. Slow, seems tedious, but 30 years later, four billion people come to Christ through that multiplication process. I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. We must remember that we are all finished, unfinished products. The Lord is sanctifying us out of this world and training us in holiness and righteousness. We need each other. We need each other. So why is this all important? Because Christ commanded it. Number one, because Christ commanded it. If we're asking why do we baptize, why do we love each other, why do we take communion? Because Christ commanded it, so we do it. I should just close my, my computer and say amen and be done. But also, it helps believers to grow in understanding. When you walk through scripture with people, when you help them to understand why we're doing what we're doing, it helps them to get a bigger picture of God, a better picture of God, a better picture of Christ, a better understanding of why we do what we do. And man, I can't tell you how many times I've sat with some of you and just had these conversations of, of different doctrines and why are we doing this and how come it looks like that? And once you get it, you come in and you have such a better understanding. You glorify God better. You worship Him better. And your relationship with Christ is better. It's all just better. But it's through the process of helping believers to grow and understand. Again, why do we do this? Because we're not perfect. We're all in the process of being sanctified. And man, we're going to struggle. And when we do, we need each other. In that process, when we struggle, we need each other to fall on each other and say, I need help. I need encouragement. I need someone to pray with me. That's why we do this. Next, because it helps to keep believers united and accountable. I mean, there's a special bond that you have with someone when you have prayed with them, when you've cried with them, when you've heard some of the personal things in their lives that they've shared with you. That they know that you're not going to go and put on, on, on RBC Facebook. Amen, yeah. It does. <laughs> that just messed me up. So, <laughs> last, because it glorifies God. Let's just do that, because it glorifies God. Let's pray. And uh, we'll get out of here. Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for this time. I pray that your people were edified by your word. And I pray, God, that they understand the, the importance of disciple-making and that we would give our lives to this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.